Hi, I'm David Dodge. Welcome to Green Energy Futures. This week, Edmonton's Mayor Don Iveson won a National Clean 50 Award for his work on energy transition and climate change. And Edmonton passed its widely lauded 1.5 degree energy transition and climate resilience strategy. So, we sat down for a chat with the mayor about energy transition and Edmonton's economic future. Well, we've had um, an energy transition plan now since 2015 that was already fairly frame-breaking for a Canadian city, uh, but it didn't go far enough as the science continued to evolve. Um, and it builds on work that we've been doing before through our previous environmental strategic plan, all geared at, first of all, you know, back since 1992, the city of Edmonton's taken climate change seriously. We started uh, some national and international organizations when I was 13. Um, and so the city's taken this seriously for a really long time because we saw the risk, but I think on some level, we also saw the opportunity. I mean, we are energy problem solvers here in this part of the country. and. Um, and so whether you see this as a threat disrupting our way of life, either as a climate crisis or as an energy uh, markets disruption, um, change is coming. Um, but if you see it with even just a glint of opportunity for future relevance for us, and that's very much how I've come to see it, then we have a responsibility, an obligation, given all of our leadership and chutzpah historically on this, to stay relevant not just for our own sake, but because we have things that will be relevant to the world in the future. We can talk about hydrogen, we can talk about green buildings, we can talk about biofuels, uh, things where we have huge expertise already that we built over the last decades of uh, what we weren't calling climate leadership, but was kind of proto-climate leadership. Now, it is, uh, to your point, often a surprise for people when I present at conferences nationally or internationally on this, they say, how could a city that at one time called itself the oil capital of Canada. That was one of our slogans back in the day. And, and a city with um, you know, a, an emissions profile of almost 20 tons per capita. Um, you know, well, how can you take this on? My answer would be, how can you not? Um, first of all, and we'll talk about the economic benefits of doing the right thing on this, but also we've seen, I think, seven out of the 10 most significant insurance losses in recent Canadian history have been in Alberta. Some of them touched us directly in the form of severe weather in Edmonton. Others touched our hearts you know, when the floods in Calgary and I went down and I swamped out basements in High River and, and um, you know, we've seen uh, also the, the, the devastating impacts of the forest fire in, in Fort McMurray. And I'll never forget the smell of the Expo Center when we were receiving people um, who, who came with the clothes on their back and ash on the hood of their cars. And that is, that is climate change already impacting us at these northerly latitudes. So, I mean, I feel morally obliged, obviously, but I also think um, that, again, as energy problem solvers, we have relevance to this in the world. Um, and we're not people who shirk from doing the right thing. So it's gonna be really hard. It's gonna be really hard, but it's gonna be glorious. So you've spent four terms, uh, two as councillor, two as mayor, and I understand there was a seminal moment in the evolution of our climate change policy here in Edmonton, uh, back that started when you attended an international climate change conference, uh, if you recall. Tell me the story. Well, the, I've, I've had the privilege of attending a few different international events uh, focused on climate and focused on cities and climate in particular. 
I got to go to the UN Climate Change Conference in Bali in 2007, you know, about 10 weeks into being a city councillor. And I've actually just written an essay that talks a little bit about this experience that's going to be coming out right away in an anthology of, of uh, works from fellow authors uh, from, uh, from the Gateway, the campus paper at the U of A. And I talk about this experience and how scary it was to start to really come to terms with what the science was saying. Um, and then a few years later, once I was mayor and chair of Canada's big city mayors, I had the opportunity to actually be part of the Canadian delegation at uh, the, the uh, UN Climate Change Conference in Marrakesh a year after the Paris Agreement had been signed. And I actually showed up there and it was about a week after the 2016 American election. And so I sort of remember this pall over the whole place because uh, the Paris Agreement, not yet a year old, was now all of a sudden in threat of being torn up by um, one of the largest emitters in the world in the United States. And so it was like hug a U.S. climate scientist time and try to figure out what are we going to do. But it started to become clear to me there and other people who were now at the table. Like when I went to Bali when I was a counselor, we were at like a side event down the road. And the closest we got to the actual diplomacy that was happening was motorcades driving by outside our hotel gates at the side event where the city people were. Um, but by the time, you know, in 2016, we were, I was a delegate. I was part of the international uh, uh, diplomatic effort from Canada and um, uh, the role of cities was starting to become clearer and clearer and it was a number of American mayors including my friend um, Bill Peduto who uh, from Pittsburgh who said we're still in and very quickly 400 plus American mayors said you know what our cities are still committed to Paris and, and, and the science behind it and the opportunities and the challenges within it. And uh, so that was inspiring. But then something happened at one of the panels I was on. I was uh, chatting with um, uh, Deborah Robertson from uh, Durban, who's a real international leader in cities and climate science. And she said, hey, we're trying to find a location for uh, a cities and client sci climate science conference. And it would be the first of its kind, because all of these conferences up to this date have focused on planetary systems and uh, country to country kind of issues and there's this whole bunch of science we need to do because more than half the world's population already lives in cities and that's rising and uh, way more of that uh, the emissions uh, at least two-thirds of the emissions also come from cities and so if we're actually going to tackle bringing down emissions we need to understand what that's going to look like in cities and we also need to understand if we don't do it how bad it could get in cities in particular. And so she said you, she'd been to a conference in Edmonton, again, one of those long pieces of leadership several years before, and she said, you guys would be a great fit because uh, she knows we host great events here. But also she thought it would be really interesting for an energy producing region like us with such a strong stake in the traditional energy economy to um, welcome uh, the world's scientific community focused on cities and the energy transition to Edmonton. And I just thought we have to go after this because I want those people to share their knowledge with us. Um, and I want us to learn everything we can from them. And I also want to demonstrate that this community, despite what we do have done for a living historically and despite our high emissions profile, is serious about this um, unequivocally. And so that led to the IPCC uh, Cities and Climate Science Conference here in 2018, which was scary, sobering. That was about the same time IPCC was saying, 
if we don't limit warming uh, to at least two degrees and ideally 1.5, um, we're going to be in real trouble. Those conferences and those contacts and those international networks are also where we're learning the art of the possible. And that's where it's from these networks that we uh, de derived and acquired the concept of a carbon budget, which is, you know, to every Albertan who understands the importance of living within our means in our households and, and in our communities, um, ecologically, we need some mechanism to force ourselves to reckon with living within our means. And so we've learned a lot from these, from these international groups uh, and networks, and that really changed the course and accelerated our, our climate leadership here in Edmonton. So that uh, International uh, Science and Climate Change Conference, the first in the world, mm -hmm. was held in Edmonton. So you managed to attract the conference, and then something really interesting happened uh, in conjunction with the conference, where Edmonton created some kind of declaration. What happened? So uh, in the run-up to the conference, we realized that, of course, the sort of main event was the science, but there's also um, there was also going to be a convening of uh, some mayors who were going to present on the challenges and the opportunities they saw both in the global south uh, where issues are are overlapped and and similar but also quite distinct um, uh, and then uh, low carbon uh, developed world cities and and high carbon cities like ours and so we did some convening of, of mayors uh, from across the country and around the world and increasingly, you know, the thought was we need to make a statement here. We need to talk about our commitment. Um, and, and that commitment, in light of what was happening in the United States in particular, needed to address a couple of points. It needed to reinforce that we were going to make science-based decisions as cities um, and that data uh, and data specific to cities was going to be important, was going to be collected. We were going to try to harmonize standards around this. Uh, and that was going to strengthen the scientific effort as well as our own uh, decision-making and accountability. And, and out of that, you get things like the carbon budget for us. And we're the first major Canadian city to commit to a carbon budget, which is a decision that's already been made in our city plan, actually. So that's hard-baked. Um, how we're going to use it is being fleshed out in the energy transition strategy that's before council right now to prioritize decision-making going forward. But taking those evidence-based approaches, making science-based decisions, um, and really leaning into leadership and saying, you know what, we need to aim for 1.5, we need to look at what it would take to get to 1.5. And it's a steeper, it's a steeper climb, or actually a steeper descent carbon-wise on the graphs, uh, uh, to do our part to, to limit to 1.5. And it's going to be tough. We're, we're talking about reductions from, you know, 19 tons per capita to 3 tons per capita uh, within the next uh, uh, several years. And on a course to, people are talking about net zero by 2050. That means that there are no GHG emissions associated with our industry, our quality of life, our buildings and our transportation. Uh, within 30 years, within our lifetimes. Now, scientifically, we've done bigger things than that. The COVID vaccine in, in a year and a bit would be an example. Going to the moon would be an example. Like, human beings are capable of this. It's a question of will. And will has consistently come up from cities and is now uh, shared by almost every country in the world, including, again, the United States. And so this is accelerating faster than I could have thought possible. And I want Edmonton to be um, not just running with it, but helping to lead it uh, scientifically, um, innovation-wise, policy-wise, um, but also because I, I think that there's tremendous economic opportunity. I want us to be selling solutions, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's high-performing smart building technology, 
uh, to other people trying to make this same uh, carbon journey to zero by 2050, rather than us having to buy those late in the game from other people. So what was the declaration called? How was it accepted by city council? And what was the reaction outside of Edmonton? Uh, it was called the Edmonton Declaration. Um, and it was unanimously adopted by city council, um, which is a diverse group of people with diverse perspectives on these issues, um, but who could agree on the science and who could agree on the economic opportunity and the need for us to see this energy transition as an economic development opportunity, not a not from a place of fear and economic threat. That narrative has taken strong hold, sadly, in many parts of the world, including this part of the world. And we're trying to very deliberately be an antidote to that. Um, and so it's been well received that this leadership is coming from this traditional energy powerhouse uh, city. Um, and it's gotten the attention of, of uh, uh, ultimately, through uh, some of the organizations we're a part of, the U.S. Conference of Mayors that we worked with, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities here, the ICLE Local Governments for Sustainability Globally, altogether uh, networks representing I think more than 47 or 4,800 cities have signed on to this either directly as cities or First Nations governments in some cases uh, or through their city networks and so it made a lot of noise and it, it uh, brought a lot of attention on Edmonton's leadership. So not to put too fine a point on this, so Edmonton officially and legally agreed to a target of 1.5 degrees long before the climate emergency was declared in 2019. So based on the science, um, we were persuaded after having this conference. And when you have like 800 of the world's leading climate scientists here presenting to city council, presenting to community, and the, the EPCOR community stage where we had these scientists presenting uh, to, to members of the public, leaders in our business community, that was transformational, I think. It, it's sort of, and you've seen denial kind of drop away. Now the debate is delay, right? Or that's the delay tactic. Is, well, we shouldn't go too fast on this, right? What, you want to get left behind, <laughs> right? So, um, so I think it was transformational. Uh, and I, I think we were persuaded again by that science and that evidence, which a good, a good city council is. Um, and why we should be given more decision-making authority on lots of things, I think. But then the question came um, of whether to declare a climate emergency. And that wasn't our first instinct because we we're already taking it seriously. But as the debate shifted from uh, denial to delay, um, as the ground for denial kind of got softer and softer uh, or shiftier and shiftier um, or, or, or was underwater now. I don't know. I'm losing the metaphor here. But the point is that, um, you know, urgency was needed again. And so uh, council, not, not unanimously, but, but overwhelmingly said, yes, we do believe this is an emergency and we need to take it seriously. And we heard that from our public and we heard it especially from our youth who uh, feel tremendous anxiety about this question and a tremendous ethical imperative for their community to be doing the right thing. And I think that ultimately that was persuasive on, on almost every member of council. I think it was an 11-2 vote, uh, I'd have to double check, but pretty strong consensus from our community that it is an emergency and we need to be acting like it's an emergency. So now you have an energy transition strategy that is long researched, well thought out, based on science, based on modeling, and it's laid this massive challenge out for you 
Uh, now what do we do? First, first tell me where the problem is. Where, where are the big boxes of emissions that we have to solve? So the major categories of emissions um, uh, are fairly consistent across cities and, and we're really good at measuring this now with utility data and consumption data and, and, and very sophisticated modeling and monitoring. So we can say uh, with a high degree of certainty that uh, you know, buildings and transportation consume the most. I don't have the percentages off the top of my head, but it's about a third for each of those. Uh, industry and power generation is um, is the next biggest, and then it's a variety of other smaller things like emissions from landfills and other things like that, that all together make your greenhouse gas profile. So it follows though that the most significant things we need to do are uh, take care of uh, the emissions related to power generation, which thankfully in Alberta we're doing with coal phase out faster than previously um, uh, contemplated, but we still need to get our power emissions down to zero. And I, I've got a fun proof point on, on that in a minute. Um, but uh, uh, not just vehicle electrification, but also um, uh, ensuring as we look at in our city plan that more of the new trips as, as the city grows, uh, that the share shifts over thanks to better public transit to more people using public transit as their primary means of getting around, more people walking and cycling within their own communities because we've built more walkable neighborhoods knit together by better public transit, and then yes, electrification uh, of more of the transportation system over time uh, and using hydrogen for long haul trucks and other things like that. So transportation's rife for innovation. There's actually Edmonton-based companies doing retrofits to existing diesel engines to reduce their emissions profile. So I mean, this is one of those things where we're gonna build black boxes that solve this problem for us and for others and make create wealth and jobs here in the process. So this is not science fiction stuff. This is real stuff happening here on transportation. And, and we can talk about hydrogen and the role that's going to play in transportation, um, zero carbon transportation in the future, and the $100 billion a year industrial opportunity that we have here around low carbon blue hydrogen, um, which is, you can read about, uh, we just launched the hydrogen hub um, this past week, uh, uh, which is looking at building that industrial and employment opportunity for us. Uh, so, so those are, again, tangible things we need to do and building, um, building uh, new housing and retrofitting existing housing and commercial buildings and institutional buildings to need less energy so that the energy we provide for them can more easily come from renewable sources, whether it's district energy systems or hydrogen or renewables on the roof. So you got to do a lot of things all at the same time. This is going to be huge and impactful. Uh, the sticker shock is $42 billion worth of investment. People say, oh my God, that's so much money. Well, most of that's private. The vast majority of it's private. Um, but $100 million a year worth of civic investment. But again, that's buying electric buses instead of diesel buses. And there's a payback of not very many years against the savings of the electric bus against this higher cost. Same reason lots of people are already buying electric cars. Um, and so all these things have a financeable payback. And this is why people like Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England and Bank of Canada are, are saying, look, this is the next, you know, uh, multi-trillion dollar investment bonanza. Again, do we want to be a part of it or do we want to miss the ballgame? So, so I think there's a lot of work to do across those emissions buckets, but I've just given you some tangible examples of places where we play in green buildings, we play in alternate and clean fuels. Um, 
and it's doable as long as we set our mind to it, move the regulatory floors up to get it, get the, uh, get the incentives right for people to make the transition and make the investments, as long as the financing is there. And you got BlackRock and, and all the other investors saying, this is the stuff we want to bet on for the next generation so that we still have uh, uh, an economy worth investing in and operating in 30 years from now that hasn't been besieged by natural disasters and food system disruptions and climate refugees and all these other things that are avoidable if we do the right thing. And Edmonton is committed to doing the right thing. So I want to talk about this in a couple of different boxes. So uh, I think one of the most important things people need to understand is this plan is about all of the city's emissions. Mm -hmm. It's about mm -hmm. the citizens, the businesses, the city as a corporation. It's about all the emissions in the city, which is why it's so big and so daunting. Uh, the city's already taking some actions. Let's start there. Uh, with uh, you know four or five things the city's already doing that are pretty cool uh, taking us down this street. Sure. Well, yeah, we're not starting from zero after decades of, of thinking about this and starting work on it. So, uh, But to your first point, it is a community energy transition strategy. So it's going to engage businesses and homeowners and institutional partners because we have to bring our, all of our emissions down. City has a strong role to play. Uh, in a couple of different areas. One obviously is public transit to the extent that um, that transportation is such a big part of our emissions profile. So, you know, if, if you look out the window here, we're doubling the LRT system in this town with the uh, construction of both phases of the Valley Line. We're redesigning uh, the bus network at some controversy to be a much more efficient and it won't just be cost efficient and time for the city and taxpayer, time efficient for the rider, but it'll also be carbon efficient in terms of emissions per per ride. Uh, it's going to support more ridership growth into the future uh, in order to help us reach those goals. So we're making changes to the and investments in the transit system. We've also just greenlit another 20 electric buses, which will be the, the largest, um, uh, another addition to what was at, at the time the largest electric bus procurement in the country. We're interested in these hydrogen technologies and how they could even retrofit the existing municipal fleet. So I think we're looking very hard at how we can tip over scale of economy that will then also support other private fleets to adopt similar technologies. So we can be a test bed for things that will come to the private sector once we help prove them. So we've taken that city as a lab approach. Uh, we've also done that in transportation. We're also doing that in green buildings. So we've now, with this strategy, committed to um, zero carbon emissions buildings for all civic buildings going forward and to more aggressive uh, cycle of retrofits of our existing buildings. So the next time, well actually City Hall is going on to a district energy system that we're building downtown and this is one of those both ends where that district energy system is going to have both civic clients and public or uh, private sector clients who instead of replacing their boilers with maybe incrementally more efficient new boilers, um, they can actually plug into a district energy sharing system downtown uh, uh, that uh, ultimately um, can be run on renewable natural gas and can be a zero carbon answer to heating and cooling for not just City Hall, but downtown. So, so again, that's where the point being, city can take leadership in a bunch of these areas. And one of the biggest ones we've front-ended is the Blatchford District Energy Sharing System, which I know you're gonna be moving into Blatchford, which is very cool when your place is ready. Um, but I was just uh, in uh, uh, one of the net zero townhomes that uh, Oshler, uh, Tegan Martin Drysdale's company has developed and looking at the heat pump and like all this stuff is real. It's technology that's here today. So, um, you know, having a net zero 
neighborhood for 30,000 people is a pretty huge um, public commitment that the city has led that will enable then those families and businesses who choose to be there uh, over the next generation to, to lead themselves as, as consumers taking leadership. So, so that, I mean, there's lots more, but those are some key examples. So the plan also deals with, and you're working on, uh, somehow getting to a building code, and, and this is, you know, there's various levels of government working on this, uh, that will be net zero. It seems like we can solve the new building problem, uh, but if you really look at the numbers uh, of what we need to do, especially, let's look at buildings, for example, uh, it's the stock of all the old inefficient buildings. How do we address that? So uh, a couple different things on the existing building stock. Um, one, I think there should have been mandatory energy labeling on buildings in this country a long time ago. Um, uh, because I think the fact that you know what the fuel efficiency of your car is, but you don't know what it is of your house, makes no sense. And then the financing that's available to consumers should also uh, reflect the energy efficiency of a home. Because if your utility bills in a place like Blatchford are lower, yeah, maybe the place costs more up front to buy because it's got better windows and it's got better walls and it's got solar on the roof and it's got an expensive heat pump system um, whose, whose payback is over some years. You should be able to finance that and you should be able to finance that really easily. We're trying to make that easier through PACE style um, financing for energy retrofits for existing homes called the CEIP, Community Energy, I can't remember what the investment, anyway, acronyms galore, but financing to help people, whether it's renewables or whether it's energy efficiency upgrades. But I, I think there's a national fix to this around mortgage rules that I'm gonna keep pushing on. But in the meantime, we're trying to make it as easy as possible. And really it's a consumer protection thing from in terms of the labeling, and a consumer education thing, because at this, at this point, people are still, if they're gonna spend an extra 5,000 bucks, they're gonna take the granite upgrade rather than the solar panels. And I think that's fine. Consumers should be able to make that choice, but you should be able to get easier financing for the solar panels if we're gonna to try to save the world here. And then if you have enough money left for, for granite countertops, that's, that's your business. So, so I think there's some financing gaps around this. There are going to be massive federal investments in um, supporting people doing the baseline assessments of their homes and then providing incentives for energy efficiency upgrades that people take. We had that in the 90s and the 2000s and it kind of went away, but that's going to scale up as part of COVID recovery. And so that's going to really amplify a lot of this, though we need to go much, much further. Um, uh, in order to get where we need to, to go on this. But the, uh, fundamentally, and, and I know this has been controversial, uh, a price on pollution and a rising price on GHG emissions in this country creates a very, very strong economic incentive to pay attention to the energy efficiency of everything that you do, including your big energy consumers, which is your car and, and your, your home. And so um, if you and if you hate the carbon tax and you want to thumb your nose at the government because of it, the best thing you can do is upgrade your home to net zero so you never pay it. But making that easy and straightforward for people from a financing point of view and a permitting point of view and also um, making the financing available for people um, can unlock all of those job creation opportunities for skilled workers who are looking for things to do today. So this is also, again, a very strong economic recovery opportunity. Uh, and the sooner we do it, the quicker, the more room we buy in our carbon budget to get to the finish line. 
So what I'm looking for to end up here is I'd like to, a couple of examples, this community has been pretty active, surprisingly, around energy transition, uh, and pretty keen, including business. Uh, what are some of the most exciting things that are happening in the community that are supporting the energy transition? So um, it's not just City Hall that's interested in this, uh, and it's not just researchers at the university working or at Nate working on uh, smart building technology and new insulation and 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 things like that. It's it's entrepreneurs uh, like Reza Nasseri who's trying to build you know net zero houses at an industrial scale using prefabrication. Uh, it's um, uh, it's other uh, home builders uh, who've done work to innovate new building systems and get them into the code so they can be easily adopted. Um, so quite a bit of private sector innovation here, supported by partnership with research uh, at our post-secondary institutions. Um, and, then, and then a lot of um, desire even from not-for-profit organizations. Like I think about in North Glenora, there was a church that was redeveloped to include affordable housing that's net zero housing, will be cheaper to run to maintain its affordability, essentially on the parking lot of, on the backside of the church. And so we've seen faith community leadership, civil society leadership. We've seen folks like you telling these stories uh, for many, many years here. So there's actually a huge community of folks uh, taking leadership on this, which makes it very, very easy then as a community and political leader to gather all that up and say, no, no, we're not starting from scratch at all. There's actually this hopeful um, uh, sort of base level of innovation and industry capacity here that we can now just have to scale. This is a scale-up problem, this isn't a startup problem. We had a big aha moment at Green Energy Futures recently. We produced about 283 documentaries across Canada. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked to a, guy, a fellow who uh, put solar on the roof of his house. Uh, but he didn't stop there. This guy was a professor and he loved spreadsheets. So he did some energy efficiency work, he put solar on. He wound up doing such so well at energy efficiency. He had tons of extra solar electricity, so he could sell it back to the grid and make a few hundred bucks. But then he sat down with another spreadsheet and he said, if I use that to power an electric car, I can get $2,500 a year in savings on gasoline instead of getting paid $300 for the extra electricity. And so the aha moment is, the more you do, the better it gets. Well, and a lot of this stuff, to your point, is already economic today if you can front end it. Um, and it's only going to get more uh, economic uh, as energy prices and commodity prices rise, as carbon regulatory fees rightly rise so that we're not getting away with the externality of sending our pollution out there, which has devastating climate consequences uh, if, if left unchecked. Um, so as the, all those, as the economic signals um, uh, come to bear in, in, in stronger ways in the coming years, all these things are going to become uh, no-brainers over time and faster and faster. So that's the, one of these tipping point things. And I was at an event a few years ago at Seattle City Hall with mayors from around the world. And I got to be on stage just before Al Gore. Um, and, he, and it was cool because I was talking to him in the green room and he knew about some of the things we were doing here in Edmonton. So that's the kind of radar that we're on. But he got up and he gave a speech and, and I'll remember, he said a lot of really interesting things, but he said, you know, as frustrating as this seems and as slow as it seems to be moving, it's like all great change. Um, it moves slower and more painfully than you would ever want until all of a sudden it moves faster than you could possibly imagine. And I think that tipping point is here. If it's, if it's not already a bit behind us, we will look back on it, especially with what's happening in the United States now as part of their COVID recovery effort. 
Uh, we just got to trim our sails and catch this one because it's going to be a wild ride. Our thanks to Mayor Don Iveson of Edmonton for taking the time to talk to us about Edmonton's 1.5 degree energy transition strategy. And we'd like to offer our congratulations to the Mayor for receiving a National Clean 50 Award for his work on energy transition on the same day the revised energy transition plan passed. Mayor Avison has served two terms as City Councillor and two terms as Mayor in Edmonton, and he's announced he will not be running in the coming elections. Check out our story on Mayor Avison and Edmonton's 1.5 degree plan at greenenergyfutures.ca. For Green Energy Futures, I'm David Dodge.